So, uh, so just by a show of hands, how many of you guys enjoy going shopping? No, I said guys. I said guys, right? I know you ladies do, right? See, but I, I, don't, I don't enjoy shopping at all, so I don't do a whole lot of it. But the, the, last, the last couple of times that I have been in Walmart and just kind of wandering around, I keep seeing these things called weighted blankets. Have you guys seen these? You know what I'm talking about? If you haven't seen them, they're a lot heavier than the, the kinds of blankets that you, you normally sleep with. The, the ones at Walmart actually weigh about 15 pounds if, if you pick them up. But I guess they range anywhere from like 4 pounds up to 30 pounds, so they're a good bit heavier than the average comforter or quilt. And it may not seem like it, but I guess they're really supposed to be very soothing and therapeutic. It's kind of like swaddling a baby when they're fussy. You know, they wrap them up and they get real snuggly, uh, almost to the point where they can't move, but somehow they take right to it and they calm down. And you wouldn't think that they'd like it, but somehow they do. And what I'm getting at here is a sensation that you might call oddly comforting. Right? Oddly comforting. It's just a, something at the surface level you would think wouldn't be, you might even think would be a little uncomfortable, uh, if not downright odd, and yet somehow it satisfies on a deeper level. And I tell you that because the psalm that we're going to look at today as our primary text, Psalm 58, uh, contains some pretty unusual and possibly uh, even some uncomfortable language that might put you off at first. But if you allow yourself to settle into it, you may find yourself uh, oddly reassured uh, at the words that David is going to share with us today and how comforting they can actually be. So if you're following along in your Bible, as I hope you are, we're going to be reading Psalm 58, which is superscribed to the choir master, according to Do Not Disturb, a miktam of David. And he writes, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of serpents, like the deaf adder that stops its ears, so it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. It's the word of the Lord. Now, for those of you that are just back with us, uh, we've been doing an expository look through the Psalms. We started with Psalm 1, and we're, we're up to Psalm 58 today. And that's some pretty tough language in that one, isn't it? Right? Uh, to open up God's word and uh, to read these Psalms that pray for him to punish someone or to, to send down a curse or to send down a misfortune... Uh, and if you've had a chance to read through your, your bulletin there in the Christian questions section, uh, you already know that our text this morning is not just a one-off, right? It's not an isolated aberration. And all you have to do is scan down over that list in your bulletin in the article there 
to see that there are a lot of psalms that contain language which at very first glance seem uh, maybe at odds with what we as believers have been taught to believe, right? Uh, things that take us way outside of our comfort zone. Uh, things like Psalm 55 that says, Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive into the grave. I hope you guys have never prayed that about anybody. Uh, or Psalm 139 or 137.9, How blessed will be the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Or how about Psalm 58, 6, today's text, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. I mean, thing, things that go not just beyond uh, our Christian ethic, but language that stands in stark contrast to the, just the basic ideas of tolerance and good old common sense morality, right? Uh, you might begin to wonder if those harsh words are almost a foreign language to the message of the scriptures and to what they're trying to convey. Uh, kind of like the, the German traveler who got lost on an extended hike through the Central European Alps. So lost, in fact, he wasn't sure exactly what country that he was in because of all the intersecting borders through there. And so when he encounters a, a young couple who were out skiing, he stops them and, and asks them for directions. Uh, and of course, he said to them in German, Entschuldigen bitte, können Sie Deutsch sprechen? Well, the young couple were from America and they just had no clue what he wanted, so they stare at him. Just stare at him. The man tried again. He said, uh, excuse moi parlez-vous français? They just stare at him. Right? So he tries again. Parlez italiano? Nothing. Hablo estedes espanol? Still nothing. And so disgusted, the German hiker just storms off in a huff. Uh, the young wife turns to her husband and says, you know, honey, maybe, maybe we should think about learning a foreign language. To which he replied, why bother? That guy knew four of them, and I still don't know what he meant. <laughs> and that's, that's a good lesson for us here today, because we can't just assume, we can't, we can't just assume that every nuance of language in the scripture is the same, and that we don't need to bother to parse it out and, and pay attention to what we're reading and what the immediate context is, so that when we read verses like this here in worship or in in our homes, and our private devotions, we can account for the jarring language of some of these psalms in a way that doesn't lessen their meaning and at the same time doesn't do violence to the New Testament doctrines of love and joy and peace and patience that we are to demonstrate to the world around us. Uh, and this whole concept is really especially important to us here as Reformed and Congregational believers because one of the essential tenets of our faith and one that sadly a lot of churches around the country are abandoning uh, is we embrace 2 Timothy 3.16 which tells us that all scripture including the imprecatory psalms and everything in between are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness that the man or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work right and so we can't just skip past the verses that we don't like. We can't just ignore verses that may make us a little uncomfortable, but instead we've got to carefully consider the way in which they fit into that divine profitability that, Timothy, or that that verse in Timothy was talking about, not only for the people of God, but for the world outside of those doors. And I think the other important reason for us to get a grasp on this is because over the years... Uh, and even more so now, the church as a whole 
has gotten a whole lot of flack from critics of our faith about their discomfort over, in their words, the, the bloodthirsty stories of the Old Testament. Uh, and things like, uh, why did God command the killing of entire nations in the Torah? Uh, why did he condone and promote such horrible actions? Uh, in fact, some critics of the faith, like in his best-selling book, The God Delusion, the atheist uh, Richard Dawkins refers to the God of the Old Testament as a vindictive ethnic cleanser. Uh, the journalist Christopher Hitchens complains the Old Testament contains a warrant for indiscriminate massacre. Uh, other critics of, of our faith level charges uh, accusing God of crimes against humanity, but are any of those criticisms valid? Or is it possible that despite our critics and despite his, God had a perfectly moral reason for ordering the wholesale destruction of those nations? And by extension, then, a reason for the psalmist to pray that his holy plan would come to fulfillment. And so if, if you've been in Sunday school, you know we covered this really in depth, uh, which is a, another shameless plug for getting more of you all out to Sunday school class, but uh, we really did cover this in depth a couple of years ago, uh, and, and modesty prevents me from giving you the full scope of it in this setting, but suffice it to say that the Canaanites were a brutal and aggressive people who engaged regularly in bestiality, incest, homosexuality, and sadly, institutionalized child sacrifice. So they were about as depraved as it gets. And also, don't forget that God gave the Canaanites plenty of leeway and more than sufficient time to repent of their evil. Uh, over 400 years, if you read between the lines of Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13, uh, and even Joshua chapter 2 lets us know that the Canaanites were definitely aware of God's power. And they could have sought repentance any time. But except in a few rare cases like Rahab and Jericho, they continued their rebellion against God right to the bitter end. And so, yes, on the one hand, God commanding violence in the Old Testament can be difficult to explain, uh, possibly even upsetting to unbelievers. But it's not without reason. And I think perhaps the best way to explain it, and, and maybe the source of our comfort uh, in the overarching reasonableness of God's plans, is to remember that he sees things from an eternal perspective. God sees the world and his people from a unique vantage point. And the Bible says his ways are not our ways. And I don't want to get too deep in the woods on that because that could spin off into a whole other sermon. But just to kind of pull the idea and the thought back together, let me say, in regards to these imprecatory psalms, when we get to them, I think the main problem uh, is that in today's culture, a culture that doesn't have even the basic underpinnings of Christian thinking like we did a generation ago, it can be really hard to get our point across when we try to explain to people the balance between God's mercy and his justice. And really just where we as individuals fit into all of that until sometimes we end up just talking past each other without either side really getting the other's point. Kind of like the, the blind man who walked into a, a ladies bar by mistake and found his way to a bar stool and he ordered a drink and and after he sat there for a while, he called out to the bartender, Hey, do you want to hear a blonde joke? Well, the whole bar immediately went deadly silent, and the lady sitting next to him leans over and says, Okay, uh, fellow, before you tell that joke, there are five things that you need to know. Number one, the bartender is a blonde girl. Number two, the bouncer is a blonde girl. Number three, I'm a six-foot-tall, 200-pound blonde woman with a black belt in karate. Number four, the woman sitting next to me is a blonde who's a professional wrestler, and the lady to your right is a blonde 
female boxing champion. Now, I want you to think about this seriously, mister. Do you really still want to tell that blonde joke? So the blind man thought about it for a minute, and he shakes his head and says, nah, you're right, especially not if I have to explain it five times. <laughs> and I don't think either side there knew what the other one was talking about, do you? I don't, I don't think they got it. And so that's why even though it might be uncomfortable, just like that blonde lady, imprecatory psalms don't beat around the bush, right? They're plain spoken. They tell it like it is. And that's probably the realest answer as to why we can demonstrate to the critics of our faith that the Bible is the faithful, infallible word of God because it lays out more than any other world religion or more than any other humanist philosophy the unvarnished truth of the world around us and the ugly truth of the life within us. Namely, our fallen, sinful human nature that Dee sang about so beautifully this morning so that every imprecation we read in the Psalms and immediately try to think of which of our enemies we could apply it to, we suddenly realize that we could in many ways be describing the justice that we ourselves deserve. Even though admittedly that's not a very comforting thought, is it? As famed British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge said, and I shared this with you before, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. So he's saying we know what we're like, we just don't like to think about it. And I'll give you a quick illustration. If you're, if you're a reader, and you guys novel readers, right? If, if you're a fan of books, particularly if you're a Victor Hugo fan, you know he wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he wrote Les Miserables, uh, but if you're a super fan of his, you know one of his lesser-known books is called 93. The story of a ship caught in a dangerous storm on the high seas, and at the height of the storm, these frightened sailors hear a terrible crashing noise below the deck. And after a quick search of the ship, they discover the, uh, the sound was made by a cannon that had broken loose from its housing and was moving back and forth with the, the swaying of the ship on the waves crashing into one side of the ship and uh, and then into the other with a, a terrible impact. And knowing it caused the ship to sink, these two brave sailors volunteer to make the dangerous attempt to retie this massive artillery in place because the sailors knew that the greater danger to the ship and the crew wasn't the storm outside, but was the danger from within that at any moment this loose cannon could burst through the hull of the ship and cause them to sink. And you know, that's really the same for us because the biggest danger that we face is not out there, but it's the loose cannon in here. The one that, without which the mercy of Christ and the filling and enabling of the Holy Spirit in our lives would surely sink us too. Right? All, of, all of us. And that's why David says in verse 3 of Psalm 58 today, he says, The wicked are estranged from the womb, they go astray from birth, speaking lies. And he's echoing, or rather Paul is echoing these words in Romans 3.10 when he says, As it's written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. He says, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So how many is that? None. Right? And that's regardless of age or race or gender or social standing. Uh, from the lowest all the way to the top, all the way to the upper echelons of, of the world, 
the problem runs straight through. And, and David addresses that right from the top. That's why Psalm 58 starts out uh, with David saying kind of sarcastically, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? And he's not talking about gods like the God of Israel because there are no others, right? Uh, these quote-unquote gods that he's talking about are David's peers. There is uh, neighboring kings, men who have been taught to believe from a, a young age, at least according to their pagan faith, that they would be a living God when they became a king, like Pharaoh. Right? Men who believed themselves to be divine when they ascended the throne. Uh, men who David might have felt some peer pressure from, from Pharaoh and kings that ruled around, and pressure to claim divinity for himself as they did. But, you know, David knew that to do that would be to deny the one true God, the one that had been his, his source of comfort, that loved David and cared for him and protected him and forgiven him sins. Uh, and through it all, it actually became a greater comfort to David than any puffed-up beliefs about himself. But, you know, you don't have to be ahead of Satan to get a swelled head, do you? Right? We're all tempted in that way because each of us are tempted to a selfishness that puts ourselves first. That, that wants the choicest seat at the table and, and that, that demands our own way until our ego can eventually feed us until we become our own spiritual poison. One that David described as he goes on to lay out his case here, as he calls out judgment on men that he declares have venom like the venom of serpents, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of the charmer or the cunning enchanter. And so David compares these guys, these kings, to snakes, who, as one commentator said, like the disobedient cobra, they refuse to listen to the snake charmer because they're already set on their own evil path. And David knew, though, that their lawlessness wouldn't go unpunished by God, and so he prays, Oh, God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear the, the fangs out of these young lions, O oh Lord. And so David's comparing God's enemies to lions with fangs that'll tear their prey apart. And so again, it's the picture of a creature bent on only looking after themselves, right? Only worried about what they need and not who gets hurt or who gets in their way as long as they get their own needs met, as long as their own ease and comfort isn't disturbed. And so David prays with this righteous anger, Lord, let them vanish like water that runs away. Let his arrows be blunted. Let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. Let the stillborn child who never sees the sun. And so he's, he's praying for lions without fangs, spilt water that flows away and gets absorbed by the ground, arrows that are fired and fall short of the mark, slug that melts, appears like it's melting as it crawls on a rock, or a stillborn child that can't grow up and be an adversary or an enemy. And so he, he's praying for an end of his problems, right? Lions with no teeth, uh, no pain from arrows, no injuries, no enemies, no problems anymore. That, that was David's prayer. Now, as far as we know, David never did any of those things to people, right? He never tore out anyone's teeth. He didn't torture his enemies. But he did pray those imprecatory psalms. And David's prayer is that just like those images, those metaphors that we read, that the wicked would be equally powerless and ineffective when they come against the people of God. And, and he trusted God to take charge of him instead. He, he believed that vengeance belonged to the Lord. And so, as shocking as it may sound, David continues and says, the righteous will rejoice when he sees vengeance. He'll bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous 
Surely there is a God who judges the earth. And brothers and sisters, I think those last two verses really actually point to the ultimate meaning of all the imprecatory psalms, and that is the righteousness of God's justice and the depths of his grace. And I really want you to hear this because this is our comfort in the midst of maybe an uncomfortable reality that in an ultimate sense, every human being's eternal destination gives glory to God. Every single one, whether we're received into the joys of heaven or consigned to the depths of hell. And here's why. And this is why it's important because we who are saved and sent to glory will be the eternal trophy of God's completely undeserved mercy. We'll be that eternal sinner saved by grace. And conversely, those sent to the lake of fire will burn forever in an unending testimony to God's perfect administration of his justice. Jonathan Edwards, the great American revivalist and Protestant philosopher, kind of made this case. He said, when the saints in glory shall see the doleful state of the damned and consider that they themselves deserve that same misery and that it was the sovereign grace of God and nothing else that made them so to differ from the damned. This is the part that really cinches it. We will never again question God's justice, wondering how he could send good people to hell. Rather, we'll be overwhelmed by his grace, marveling that he did so much to send we very bad people to heaven. Right? We're going to marvel at his grace for all eternity that he lavished it on we believers. So in heaven, we'll see clearly that God revealed himself individually to each person that he gave each one an opportunity uh, each heart each conscience the ability to seek after him and respond and he did that in the person and in the work of jesus christ on the cross the only place where god's perfect righteousness and his relentless love for us meet and are reconciled right At, at the cross where god's justice was perfectly administered and his mercy publicly displayed when our god took on himself the punishment meant for the guilty, for me, for us. And as uncomfortable as the image may be, he didn't just take our sins like you could hold a filthy rag at arm's length. The Bible says he became our sins, and he did it for you and for me for no other reason than he loved us in spite of the horrible price that it cost him. When our perfect, sinless, infinitely just creator, according to his own design, established the means that we sinful, guilty human beings could be reconciled to him without one ounce of guilt being swept under the rug, without one bit of justice unserved, and with not one drop of mercy wasted, all because of what Jesus endured for us at the hands of God the Father. Right In that full measure of his holy imprecation that bought not just our justification, but our sanctification in that great mystical exchange of his stripes for our healing of his disgrace for our esteem, of his grief for our glory, and his pain for our ultimate peace, our salvation in the imprecation of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together.